Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. It's the 14th of November. 2022. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. I'm just delighted to uh, be included in your day. So thank you so much um, for whatever it is we're doing together right now. Maybe we're having coffee. I'm having coffee with you, whether or not you're having coffee with me. Totally, totally. Um, yeah, that's a mystery to me, exactly what we're doing right now in terms of what's going on in your life. So you can always uh, clue me in. I'm on the text line, 877-933-2484. Love to hear from you. Know what we're up to today. God's, or God's, I say God's growing your faith verse of the day. Yeah, it is God's growing your faith verse of the day. It's also Faith Radio's growing your faith verse of the day. You can sign up to receive it in your inbox every morning at myfaithradio.com. I'll read read today's to us, for us, with us. Mm -hmm. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. So let's talk about um, salvation and how we are saved and what salvation is and what it's not. Let's just pause here for a moment and think about this. I was reminded in looking at um, these verses this morning reminded of Paul and Silas's interaction with the jailer in Acts chapter 16. Um, you might remember there, they're in jail. They, um, they're tied to the wall by chains, and yet they're singing and praying. Um, an earthquake shakes the prison, breaking the chains and setting all the prisoners free. And so the jailer, upon realizing what had happened, thought, well, I'll just kill myself rather than be, be killed because, you know, clearly all of my prisoners have escaped. But in fact, the prisoners were all still there. And the jailer looks at Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe and you will be saved. This is an echo of what Paul says in Romans chapter 10 in today's verse. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe and be saved. We bring nothing to salvation but ourselves and our recognition of our desperate need. And in all humility, the jailer then, you know, kneels down and and repents. And it is by grace that we've been saved, through faith, not from ourselves. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. So I don't want you to imagine that uh, Paul is suggesting here that, you know, in order for uh, God's redemptive act, gift, in the giving of Jesus upon the cross and his sacrificial death of atonement and his rising from the dead, um, that you have to add to that, you have to add to that your belief and your, you know, your, the, your lips, your tongue. That's not what this is about. 
This is about how we respond to the free gift of God's good grace in Jesus Christ. God desires that everyone would respond to this free gift of grace in Jesus, but not everyone responds by believing and receiving. And so salvation is not universal. Um, this text does say, like, right, you, you've got to declare that Jesus is Lord. You've got to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There is a response that is necessary for salvation. Um, there's this affirmative response is required. So have you refer- affirmatively responded? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? And are you declaring so with your lips? These are like some big ifs, by the way. Some big, big, big ifs in um, reflecting on maybe some other big ifs in the Bible. You could do an if study um, of the Bible, like a word study of all the big ifs. You know, the Lord says, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you'd say to the tree, be uprooted and be planted uh, in the sea and it would obey you. You know, big ifs. Um, uh, yeah, there's some so many ifs. Oh, we won't go over those all right now. But this is a big if, if question. If you openly declare, if you um, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if, what's your answer to that if today? Um, have you? Have you openly declared that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? If so, you will be saved. Dave Buring is going to join us next from Lion Share. We're going to turn our attention a little bit to uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is nearly upon us. And so spirit of gratitude, generosity, Thanksgiving. What do all of those look like in the life of a Christian? That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Every step of the way Well, we're welcoming back our friend Dave Buring. Good morning, fine sir. How are you? I'm fine. How are you this morning? I'm I'm well. It's, it is uh, it is well with my soul. It's cold. Paul mm-hmm. and I were discussing the end of last week that uh, although it might not be astronomical winter or even meteorological winter, it's definitely phenomenological winter. So there you go. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. I when I was outside the other day, I thought I feel like I'm in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. There you go. Mm-hmm. Although, although, <clears throat> let us confess that neither Dave nor I are in Minnesota, and so we do confess. You definitely we might, are not. <laughs> we might not be quite as cold. <laughs> this is this is not a contest this morning about just how cold it is where you are. We're just acknowledging that it's phenomenologically cold where we are, mm-hmm. wherever we are. <laughs> absolutely true. All right, so um, let's talk a little bit today about gratitude, thankfulness, and generosity. Um, where, do, where do you want to start? Well, I think with Thanksgiving coming around the corner, it's always time to be able to pause and to analyze how well have I been giving thanks. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I don't mean like in a navel-gazing kind of way, but there is something about the reality that when we give thanks – consistently to the Lord, when we give thanks consistently to each other, it acknowledges that we can't do it on our own. And uh, I think of the many people in my life, I often will say, Carmen, that when someone affirms me on something that I've done, I'll say, you know, the the reality is, is maybe 
if I spoke on something, I'd say maybe a third to 40% of what I shared are things that the Lord taught me. The rest of it are things that others have passed on to me along the way and have now become a part of my life. And I think Thanksgiving re- recognizes the contributions of others in your life. And I, I don't know that we do that real well these days. When we think about passages of Scripture um, that talk about giving thanks, because I, I always think, Dave, it's helpful you know, for us to, to ground what we're encouraging one another to be doing. Like, there's actually a biblical mandate, a reason, an invitation, and examples um, for cultivating a life of thankfulness and thanksgiving. So, I don't know, what are some of your go-to give thanks verses? Yeah, yeah. So when I think of, of this and in the context I just said, I think of like First Thessalonians. There's and there's mm. several there. So First Thessalonians one, two says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mm. mentioning you in our prayers. So there's the thanksgiving, you know, to God and to other people. Um I like where it says in First Thessalonians five eighteen in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And that reminds me that my thanksgiving is not just meant for when I receive that nice thing or when something good happens to me, but it says, in everything, give thanks. And so it doesn't mean you say, thank you that I had a car accident, but in the midst of your car accident saying, thank you, Lord, that you protected me and my family. Thank you know, and you look for those things in the midst of everything to be grateful for, and I think that's, I think that's something in Scripture that we need to be able to build upon in our lives. That there's an overflowing of gratitude. Mm. Thanksgiving, thankfulness, gratitude—it has an effect on us, um, and a lack of it has an effect of, on us as well. So. Um, Dave and I will be right back. We're gonna we're gonna talk about like what does the impact of gratitude and thankfulness, and then an actual outpouring of thanksgiving. What what does that do in and for us and around us? And what does a lack of that produce in our lives as well? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We're here with Dave Buring from Lion Share. We're talking about gratitude, thankfulness, and generosity, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. All right, in the same way that um, kiwi might not make your list of things that you would automatically put in a fruit salad, I want us to be mindful that thankfulness and gratitude are evidence of the Spirit of, of God at work in our lives. And just because thankfulness or gratitude don't make the list in Galatians 5, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, um, gentleness, self-control, um, just because... Uh, just because it doesn't make that list, I mean, generosity does. So, But just because 
gratitude or Thanksgiving doesn't make that list doesn't mean that um, oh I don't I don't need I don't need that kiwi in my fruit salad oh no yes you do so we're talking with Dave Buring today about gratefulness gratitude Thanksgiving as we uh, move into what I hope is a season of Thanksgiving not just a day so Dave talk with us a little bit about um, what gratefulness or gratitude reveal when they are either present or absent from our lives. Yeah, well, I think one of the things for us to recognize is that it is, it shows that we're rooted in the grace of God. Like, you know, and I'm just playing off words here, but think of how many times when we're around the table, this may happen to you actually at Thanksgiving, and someone starts by saying, who would like to say grace? It's like, Mm. why do we just not say, who would like to pray? You know, but we say, who'd like to say grace? And in the reality of things, um, the word grace is rooted also in the word that we get for Thanksgiving. They're, they're blended together. In other words, it's like for the expression of God's grace and kindness that he's expressed to us, we offer Thanksgiving. And so I think it's a recognition in our lives that God's grace is a very center part of our life. I also think something else that it does, which can be both a good thing or a challenging thing, is it reveals our hearts. Gratefulness or the lack thereof reveals what we really believe about God and what we really believe about how he's provided for us. And so I think there's something important there. And again, because I'm looking to grow and because of like a lot of what I do is come alongside and discipling people and looking for ways to grow my own life, to grow theirs. I'm a one that, that believes that your heart really reveals what's inside of you. And so if we can pay attention to our reactions from our heart, it shows what's really there. And sometimes my reactions reveal that I don't, I don't have some gratitude in this particular situation. I don't have gratefulness there. And I need to ask the Lord to help me see this thing differently. So I think that's a couple of the things that that can happen. The the consequences of the lack of gratitude, if you look at Romans chapter 1, it it gets a little scary, Carmen, because it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That there can become a bit of a discontentment. Uh, a criticism of others, a cynicism, actually even a bitterness that can begin to grow. And so the consequences of a lack of gratitude don't bear good fruit. They do bear fruit. Uh, it's just not good fruit. I think that's yeah. a, a really, really good reminder. Um, again, you know, thinking of if if we're rooted in grace um, and we're, we're rooted and grounded in love, um, that is going to produce different fruit than if we are rooted and grounded in uh, in the world and the things of the world and ourselves and our self-sufficiency and the things that we've done or accomplished, you know, and all of that is juxtaposed against the grace that you've described, you know, earlier. So, um, so just to, you know, just to review here, our, um, our gratitude, our thanksgiving, um, our, even our generosity, they're all rooted in the reality of God's grace. And so as you're counting your blessings and naming them one by one and working, um, you know, w- working out all of the plans related to Thanksgiving, whatever those are going to look like in your family, um, all of the moving parts and pieces. And, you know, there may be an empty chair this year that wasn't empty last year. Um, there may be complications this year that didn't exist last year. People may not be able to 
you know, afford to travel. The turkey might be smaller, whatever. Um, what are the places and ways that we can give thanks to God and deepest gratitude for his grace? And are we rooted and grounded in the grace of God? And then what does that produce in our lives? And can we turn to God in gratitude and thanksgiving um, for all of that? Because I do think that, you know, if we're focused on the circumstantial, we do we do get ourselves into trouble. Um, you know, we're 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 looking here to cultivate the same spirit that um, that was alive in Paul, who knew the secret of being content in all circumstances. Um, and so that's the conversation that we're seeking to have here. We're talking with Dave Buring from Lion Share. Um, Dave, you make a connection uh, between Thanksgiving and this the spirit of gratitude and um, and gratefulness and communion. Can you? They're the Lord's Supper. Can you talk with us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think when we consider communion, oftentimes, you know, I don't know if people actually take the time to pause and give thanks uh, during communion. It's a time that, you know, oftentimes somebody, the pastor or maybe your home group leader is standing in front with a, you know, loaf of bread and a cup of juice or wine or, or wafers or something, and you're ready to have communion. And I think it's really important that we pause because Jesus Jesus told us, this is my body, which is given for you. And he took the cup. This is my cup, the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And when we do this in remembrance of, of Jesus, it's important that as we take that, that we pause to give thanks for what it is that Jesus has actually done for us. And I think sometimes in the midst of busyness, we forget that. And communion is a great place for me to be able to simply hold those things in my hand. I kind of do two steps because the Bible also talks about, says first a person should examine their heart. So I examine my own heart. If there's any sin there, I confess it to make sure my heart's right before God and others. But then I just want to pause and acknowledge Thank you that I have known the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that I don't have to walk around with guilt anymore. Thank you that you have cleansed me from all these things. And I acknowledge you as the source of that. And so for me with communion, there can be that giving of thanks that I think can be a little bit more intentional where we pause to recognize once again, this is what he has done for me. All right, and I definitely um, risk now um, sacramentalizing uh, every time I break bread with people. But I got to tell you, Dave, every time I sit down at table fellowship, including at the fellowship of my own table over, you know, meals like Thanksgiving, part of what I pray is that Christ would be made known among us in the breaking of the bread. Like I want, I want the table fellowship to be communion-like. I want it to be um, in the spirit of gratitude over the gifts and the resources that are laden upon the table and in the sharing of them one with one another. Um, and and I want, you know, and I also want it to be a demonstration. I mean, if we're, if we're doing it out in public, right? Mm-hmm. I want the conversations at our table, the spirit with which we um, engage with the person who is serving us. I mean, on and on and on. I want all of that to be a demonstration of the gospel, that Christ would be made known between us, among us, and through us 
in the breaking of the bread. And so I thought that um, your communion reminder here in relationship to Thanksgiving um, and even our gathering over table fellowship was was a really helpful one today. Well, and I think what you just shared is a reminder to all of us that Jesus wants to meet us around the table. I, I like how after his death and his resurrection, that's one of the places he showed up is he just appeared and and broke bread with them. And I think that's an important thing that Jesus be around our tables, particularly Thanksgiving Day. Rick is on the text line saying, kiwi does not belong in fruit salad, just for the record. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Dave, as always, thank you so much. What a blessing to be together. You guys have a great day and may your Thanksgiving with your families be awesome. Amen. And yours as well. That's Dave Buring. You can find him at lionshare.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. All right. Lots of people rejecting the idea of putting kiwi and fruit salad on the text line this morning. So... Friends, friends, it was just an example. It, Carmen, it I just don't depends like, on which fruit salad or what kind of fruit salad you're making. Right. Anyway, right? my opinion. I know. I know. No, there you go. I, Paul, if you were going to make a fruit salad, what would be in it? Uh, well, okay, if you're doing something that's more of a, um, I don't know, a pineapple and kiwi and a mm. few other things. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're trying mm-hmm. something that's a bit more See, that sounds tropical. Pacific, a tropical yeah, tropi- fruit there salad. we go. That's mm-hmm. what I was looking mm-hmm. for. I couldn't think of it. Tropical. There you go. That see, then you might even be tempted to put coconut in it, which, see, I oh, would immediately yes. reject. See, oh, I would reject that. Oh, come that. on. I know. I know. Coconut's well, there, good. There you go. I know. It's going to be a fight. All right. Uh, all right. Today's fruit salad. Um, let's see. If we were in my kitchen today, here's what I would have available to put in a fruit salad. It would definitely have apples because I have several varieties of apples right now, which also, see, might mean that I lean in the direction of doing something um, a little fallish. I might throw some raisins in there today. Mm, and okay. then I might be tempted... With all that, to just turn the whole thing into chicken salad, because I might be like, "Ooh, let's add a protein to this." See, I, I, and then, and then I would say, "Ooh, and some slivered almonds would taste good with that." All of that mixed up together with a little celery, like, I, mm-hmm. you got me going here. I know, right? So anyway, there you go. I, my fruit salad might immediately turn into <clears throat> a meal because, yeah, then I'd be like, "Ooh, I'm here cutting things up," and I know it's not Taste and See Tuesday. I also know it's not far, Farm Report Friday. But let me um, let me go ahead and tell you, Paul. Last night I got home, and uh, and I picked up Matthew, and we we came home, and he went immediately out to check on his chickens, and mm-hmm. I'm you know unloading the car into the house, and um, and he calls me on my phone, which is kind of funny because he could just yell. I mean, it's like not that far. <laughs> anyway, he calls me on my phone, and I answer it, and I'm like, "What's up?" And he goes, "There's a possum in the coop, oh. and I have him, and I have him cornered." That's why he so, called you. So he called me. So it's just Matt, Matthew and I at home. Nobody else is home, which, of course, you know, means I have to step up to the challenge, right? Because mm-hmm. I can't, we can't leave a possum in the chicken coop. Like, nope. that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. He's been dispatched. The possum has been dispatched. <clears throat> but, um, yes, there you go. I I rose to the farm wife challenge last <laughs> night. <clears throat> yeah. That's the big news. I mean, I thought dealing with the rodents was a big deal, but now, you know, that's the, yeah. The chickens are much happier this morning. That's what, that, that's, that's really what the end of this report. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what are we doing here? Um, what am I supposed to be doing? Uh, Have well, we are, we've already heard Max Lucado, yes? 
Uh, oh, yes, we've I'm done supposed that. to be talking about bringing Adam Carrington yes. on next. Yes, yes, yes. It's Monday morning, people, and I can't quite remember what I'm doing. But here's what I do know. Um, we've had an election, and it's kind of finally over, although not totally. But we are going to get from Adam Carrington, who's an associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College. We're going to get um, sort of a where we stand report as also and, and a post-mortem. Adam Carrington is going to bring his election post-mortem to us today. Dun-dun-dun! That's up next. Strong Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Adam Carrington is joining us now. He's an associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College. He tweets at Carrington AM. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you doing today, Carmen? Uh, I am well. I am well. Uh, it is well with my soul. I'm having coffee. Yeah, I lost a little bit of track of where I was going a minute ago, but I'm back on track now. How about you? I need coffee to make sure I don't <laughs> lose track of where I'm going, uh, uh, but I, I bet I will later in class today anyway. So uh, It's Monday. Believe, it's Monday. Me. There's a lot of grace. Yeah. Uh, believe yeah. me, I, I I I know the I know the idea. I I, I sometimes <laughs> my rambling professor brain doesn't necessarily stay where it's supposed to. <laughs> All right, here's what I have to get both of us on track: incumbent Democrat senators Mark Kelly of Arizona and Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada have both narrowly won re-election, giving the Democrats 50 seats required to control the Senate. Vice President Harris would be a tie-breaking vote if necessary. Um, there is still one outstanding uh, election, which will be resolved in a runoff on December the 6th in Georgia. But it's really kind of moot because the GOP can't take control at this point because Harris would be the deciding vote either way. Apparently still 20 uncalled House races Republicans favored to win, giving them uh, what is assumed to be a narrow majority. But no one yet has the required 218 seats to control the House. Um yeah, that's my, uh, those are sort of my, I, I don't know, here's the other announcement that, or the other election outcome that I think a lot of listeners will be interested in. In both Michigan and Minnesota, Democrats will now hold the governor's office and control uh, the legislative branch in, in both of those states throughout state government, which is going to allow Democrats in those states to pass laws without any support of Republicans. And that will be a shift in both of those states. So, um, I don't know. You you wrote up a really excellent uh, sort of postmortem that I'd love to love to hear you share. Um, you're talking here about um, reform, not revolution. Right. I think one thing that you could take away from this, and I live in Michigan, and the state senate hasn't been Democrat in 40 years. In mm -hmm. fact, I think Democrats have had what they are about to have in Michigan control of of the legislature and the the governorship for only maybe the, I think they've had it for seven years since the Civil War in Michigan. That that's how big that is here. But you know, the the question is thinking about why things didn't go as well for the GOP as they wanted, as most people thought they would, as historically midterms go for the party out of power. What why did that happen? And and one of my observations w will be it's it's going to be coming out in the next day or two is that the revolutionary rhetoric and the type of candidate that that is attracting in the primaries and therefore going into the general elections 
has actually been detrimental to even the, I think, positive and good goals that the GOP is trying to achieve. And that a idea of reform, which still accepts the legitimacy of the current system, tries to work within it and tries to move it back toward a better sense of justice, is not only the more right view that is less prone to violence, less prone to uh, trying to burn the system down, which I think often brings more problems than AIDS, but it also, I think, is the more electable that we saw people who are, ran as as with, with a record of competency, with a record of achievement, still talking about the country needs to change, the country needs to be better, the country needs to have a lot of things different. Um, those candidates did very well. Uh, that were Republicans and the ones that tended to be more revolutionary in the way they talk, more uh, attacking the entire system as a whole, that the voters basically said, we're, we're not ready for that. We don't think that's the right idea. And I think that there was some wisdom in that and something the Republicans can hopefully take going forward. So don't give up. Don't say that they're wrong on a number of the issues that they're fighting for. Uh, abortion would be one example of this. But to uh, to to say, how, how can we reform in a way that uh, recognizes the legitimacy of the system, but moves it toward justice? So when um, <clears throat> when you're thinking through these things, you know, there, there are a lot of folks sort of offering diagnoses of what happened or, you know, or postmortems, I guess, is the, you know, sort of the language of the day. Um, President Trump figures into these conversations. He has said he's going to make a big announcement tomorrow night. I think a lot of people are anticipating he's going to announce a run. Um, But my observation would be that um, sort of his his way of going about things is really was really rejected largely by voters across the country. Um, am I am I seeing that accurately? I think that it showed that while President Trump had made a, a very a big contribution to the Republican Party that helped its electability, say, in the Midwest and other places by moderating the GOP's stance on trade and economics and bringing in a lot of working class voters, I think that that is something the GOP is not going to turn away from and that it was not in itself, it was not a bad thing for the party to become more working class and to take into account the thoughts and feelings of a segment of the population that they had not done as much. So that's the the, the positive that I think that the president contributed to the party. But the pugilistic uh, uh, version of, of President Trump, the, the, the part that um, is a, a little light on competency in governing and heavy on fire throwing rhetoric i think what the people said is we we need someone who is tough and strong but also someone who's shown competency and seems like they're able to govern and a number of people that ran with president trump's approval the main reason they seemed to get his approval this election cycle was that they were the most praiseworthy of him the most sort of infatuated with him rather than who was the Republican that could actually put forward his uh, his agenda uh, best. And at least the, I think the more substantive parts of his agenda. So it was very clear that those uh, who were basically there because the president 
uh, back them. Uh, Mehmet Oz in, in Pennsylvania, uh, Mastriano, the governor candidate in Pennsylvania. It looks like Carrie Lake, as well as um, Blake Masters, the Senate and 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 uh, 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 gubernatorial candidate in Florida, are both going to go down. Um, compared to those who had a little more distance from him and their own independent record, Mike DeWine in Ohio, um, obviously DeSantis in Florida, uh, the, the, dis- the difference was really stark. And I think it shows that while we're not going to go back to the GOP of 2014, I think the president has changed that, the former president has changed that definitively. Um, the idea that anything and everything he has to offer or anything and every candidate that he supports is a winning strategy i think between 2018 and 2020 and 2022 now have shown that that that's not the right track record one needs to be selective about what president trump's contributions have been and see that this last election went as badly as it did in significant portion due to uh i think not learning the right lessons from from what president trump contributed over the last six years we're going to continue our conversation with Adam Carrington here in just a moment. He has a piece posted at the Washington Examiner looking at the losses that pro-lifers, um, those of us who are pro-life, this was not uh, a positive election cycle for us. Uh, voters sided with abortion rights through ballot measures um, in states as diverse as Kentucky, Michigan, and Vermont. We're going to um, we're going to talk about Adam's perspective on how pro-lifers like you and me might respond and how we might look to former President Lincoln, um, you know, in, in terms of our witness in the culture today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show featured on the Faith Radio Network. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share at MyFaithRadio.com. My guess is you spend a fair amount of time on social media. So where do you spend your time? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube? Well, have you followed or liked Faith Radio on those platforms? I would invite you to do so. I'm there as well. If you want to check out uh, my personal pages, you could connect with me individually. We would love to have you uh, use the resources that we have produced and are creating and posting on social media for you to share with others. We got all kinds of stuff from graphics to, you know, Bible verses. I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. Go check it out on your social media. Connect with us on Faith Radio social media. And, you know, let's get the word out to others. All right. Back to the show. Again, thanks for listening. Love connecting with you at MyFaithRadio.com. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, I'd like to focus on um, ballot measures next. There were a number of ballot measures across the country related to life and the protection of life, or in some cases, um, states actually, uh, you know, putting into their constitutions protections um, for women who want to access abortion. Um, Talk with us from a pro-life perspective about what happened and then turn our attention to President Lincoln in the 1850s, because you make some great parallels here in your piece in the Washington Examiner. As you were saying before the break, it was a bad night for the pro-life movement. And part of the problem was it was not just that the pro-life movement measures protecting abortion 
uh, were passed and measures that allowed more ability to protect the unborn went down in a place like Vermont, which is traditionally very left leaning, or even in a place like here in Michigan, where I live, where a ballot initiative changing our constitution to protect abortion passed. And you could see us as a kind of purple state, but even in a more conservative state that would seem to be more, much more pro-life like Kentucky, it didn't, uh, the, the, the abortion rights side won. And that, that's pretty, it's a big letdown and a big reversal from this summer when there was the euphoria of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And I think that one of the parallels one might see, and I don't think we're as bad off as this was, but if you go back to the 1850s, um, Lincoln was, uh, Abraham Lincoln was anti-slavery. He was part of putting together the Republican Party that was the first dedicated anti-slavery party. But the 1850s, the pro-slavery movement was winning all the victories. The Kansas-Nebraska Act was a very pro-slavery move. Uh, the Dred Scott decision that's infamous is one of the worst Supreme Court decisions ever made it look like slavery was on the verge of being the nationalized across the whole country. And so there were all sorts of things that made it look like there was no way that the anti-slavery movement, the freedom movement was going to succeed. And I think two things you can, we can learn from Lincoln on this. One is that Lincoln really pushed to create a broad coalition that tried to get the most anti-slavery legislation possible and the most anti-slavery social and cultural push that he could uh, given the circumstances. And that meant being willing at times to say, I can't touch slavery where it already exists in the South, but I can keep it from spreading or I can incentivize slave owners to free their slaves, even if at currently I can't make them give up their slaves. And so I think the pro-life movement needs to take that away. What is the most pro-life accomplishments we can make across the country and in particular states. Um, and I think from Lincoln, we also learn that to, 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 to not lose heart. Um, uh, the, uh, he said uh, he, uh, repeatedly that he thought slavery was wrong, regardless of what everyone thought, but that he needed to do the best he could to bring more people to his side. So one thing the pro-life movement needs to learn after Dobbs is how do we make the argument for the pro-life movement and how do we make sure that even when we lose we don't lose heart because how do we redouble our efforts knowing that the cause is just that um that this is a good thing that we're trying to do this is a necessary thing we're trying to do and to not give in to despondency but also think about what's the best way to go forward and um, you know, uh, I, I, I certainly think that Lincoln's uh, model in the 1850s of what he was trying to do is is a good one for us to a not lose heart, but b be even better in our strategizing of what's possible and how do we move toward our ultimate goal in light of what's possible. Babies have no bootstraps. This is my my new pro-life way of thinking about um, some things in the culture when people are, um, they're pro-life, but then they're not. I mean, it, it is true, Adam. It's the, the criticism of the pro-life movement sometimes is true, that there's a lot of harping about um, people having, carrying babies to term. But those same people are not necessarily, 
necessarily supporting those moms in um, both prenatally and then once those babies are born. Like, that is true. There is some truth to that. And so um, I was reminded yesterday that, you know, babies don't have bootstraps. So if you are a person who's thinking to yourself, well, you know, I'm pro-life and people ought to be having those babies that they're, you know, that are being conceived, um, what are you doing? What are you doing to provide for that woman that she can both carry that baby to healthy term and then support that baby in the first couple of years of life. Um, nothing is more important than than the issue or the concern related to poverty um, and early childhood. And so, if you want to, if you really want to engage on this issue, then um, then it is about supporting women who are pregnant with babies in order that not only um, their pregnancy might be healthy. And they might be healthy throughout their pregnancy, but that they might actually be in a position to provide for that child um, once once the child is born. So yeah. uh, gl- globally, we have this initiative called the First Thousand Days. It, I mean, globally, the United States of America is engaged in prenatal care and then postnatal care for a thousand days. It's you know from from conception until uh, the child's third birthday. And I'm thinking to myself, okay. We do that globally. Why don't we do that here in the United States? Why don't we have a first thousand days initiative here in the United States? And I would say two things. One, culturally, we do have about four, almost four crisis pregnancy centers for every abortion clinic. And that is a good thing. And more and more Christians need to be as as churches and as individuals supporting, volunteering, participating, because all of them can use a lot more help. But I think with the Thousand Day Initiative, one thing you're talking about is there needs to be a more serious conversation about, in addition to culturally, what can we do legislatively? If mm-hmm. there are going to be more unplanned pregnancies or crisis pregnancies or difficult situation pregnancies, and we want to protect the the babies and we want to love the mothers, what can legislatively our policy do to be more pro-family? Pro-family, not just in the womb, as you say, but pro-family in early childhood. What support is needed and what do we need to put our money and our time and our effort where our mouth is in that realm as well to make sure that women are cared for and that children are welcomed and that that support, as you say, continues into, into early childhood and beyond. And with given the crisis we have with the break breakdown of the family, that's just more necessary. There are lots of communities that do not have the internal structure and support to help these mothers. Where can we step in to make sure that that happens uh, in, in, in our own time and place, recognizing that circumstance? All right. So here's an idea, Adam. What if what if we had a creation care conversation? Because UNICEF, which is concerned with chil- children around the world, UNICEF is you know obviously concerned with global poverty and the access that that children lack to food right now um, globally, but also uh, the ways in which children are like most children around the world have already have already enjoyed the coolest year they will ever enjoy in their whole lives. Like the world, it's like literally heating up. And so this is a conversation about stewardship and creation care. But what if we linked creation care to procreation care? What if we linked like, like the stewardship of the environment to the stewardship of life itself? I mean, I'm trying to find a way for evangelical Christians who 
are concerned about, you know, what God has said to us in the Bible and the man and the creation mandate, which is also a procreation mandate. What if we could figure out as evangelical Christians a way to link those two? Mm-hmm. And and you do see the left, uh, the political secular left, often talking about the relationship between uh, uh, taking care of our, the children that are born and the idea of our responsibility to be exercise dominion over the earth uh, and 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 the create and and something equivalent to the creation mandate, although they often don't talk in those terms. But yes, I think the way you can link that is look to Genesis two and uh, one and two, and to say that it is a linked pro- a prospect that God gave us dominion over the earth, which gives us an uh, an intrinsic responsibility to care for it. But the idea that we are to be fruitful and multiply to create new um, beings created in the image of God who are then to be nurtured and cared to become worshipers of God. Um, you know, missions exist. I know uh, the, the theologian and pastor John Piper says this, uh, 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 missions exist so that worship can exist. Uh, but we need to be good stewards of our world so that they have a world in which they can worship. They have a world in which they can um, see the glories of God and themselves be beings that pursue the glory of God. So yes, I think that is a link one could make, and that would be a good text to to, to bring together. How does the creation mandate and the be fruitful and multiply mandate connect to each other? All right, the creation mandate and the procreation mandate. I'm going to give, I'm going to noodle on that. I'm going to give that some thought. Uh, Adam, thank you as always for a, such a stimula- stimulating conversation on this Monday morning. That's Adam Carrington. You can find him at Hillsdale College where he teaches politics. You can also find him on Twitter where he, you know, waxes eloquent. I don't know. Do you have a blue check? I do not. I, I do not. And I mm-hmm. probably won't pay for it if that's no, no. what is coming. Clearly. So. Clearly not paying for blue checks here. All right, that's uh, Adam Carrington. You can find him on Twitter at Carrington AM. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. This is a kingdom. All right, thank you for your engagement on the text line this morning. Keep them coming. 877-933-2484. Yeah, I I get it. I know what UNICEF supports and doesn't support. I also know they have the best numbers globally on what's going on with kids. So um, thank you. Uh, Thank you for those of you concerned about adoption. Yep, I uh, recognize there are millions of people who want to adopt. I also know there are more than 200,000 children right now in the United States who are adoption eligible who people don't want. So what does it say about us that we don't want the children who are currently available, but we want the children that we want and we want them? Yeah, see, this is a we face a challenging, challenging struggle here on this conversation. We're going to actually we're going to actually talk about foster care and adoption a little bit later uh, this morning. Hey, thanks so much for being here. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.